Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As we continue through the life and ministry of Paul, um, the book of Acts, we're in Acts 19 and 20, and that's when Paul leaves Corinth to go to Ephesus, and he spends about three years in Ephesus, and it's while he's in Ephesus that he writes what we now understand to be 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be spending time in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. This morning, we're going to look at 1st Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 31. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and, there be, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, he's quoting from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, certainly what the world doesn't consider to be significant, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Indeed, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, this past week I found myself between books, and so I got online to kind of look through my favorite genre, my favorite literary genre, which would be historical nonfiction or creative nonfiction love books in that genre type, and picked up one called Code Breakers that is absolutely fascinating, written by one of the last living Trude Code Breakers. His name, his English name is... Chester Nez. And it's a fascinating story in the context of World War II. Um, as the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, they were um, easily conquering lots, vast stretches of the South Pacific. And, and we were losing some initial conflicts with them because they had broken our code. They had broken our peacetime code. They had broken our military code. They knew what we were doing, when we were doing, how we were doing things. They were so confident in their ability to break our code that they would break in on transmissions to let us know that they knew our code. It was a real problem until a technical sergeant with the Marines named Philip Johnston had heard about the ways in which his father, who was a missionary, to the Navajo Nation until he heard about the ways that the Navajo language operated. It had no written alphabet. It was basically unknown throughout the world. It's a tonal language so that depending on the tone of your voice, the same word can mean a number of different things. And so originally, they brought together 400 Navajos, whittled it down to 30, and then 29 actually participated in this program. And they put them together, and they had them develop a code. And it turned out to be one of the most unbreakable codes in the history of the world. Absolutely baffled the Japanese, enraged them, infuriated them in the context of World War II. The Navajo codebreakers are viewed as being the key to victory at Iwo Jima. Ultimately, they were viewed to be heroes. Like the Japanese would get so frustrated that they commented they thought we were speaking underwater to each other because it was so confusing, so baffling how this code operated. Like I said, the ultimately were viewed as heroes and, and under President George Bush they were recognized. Well, they weren't always recognized. And Chester Nez talks about what it was like to grow up um, in the 1920s in the Navajo Nation in Arizona and New Mexico and how they were viewed as primitive, barbaric, savages limited to these areas on their reservation. When he was eight years old, they were forced to go to boarding schools. They were severely disciplined if they spoke Navajo. They wouldn't let them mention Navajo uh, names or things at all. They were trying to assimilate them in many ways, eradicate their custom. And so it's just amazing, the irony, that something that the government views as barbaric, uneducated, savage, you know, tried to, tried to erase that language was the very language that was used by our government to save our troops in the South Pacific. That is 
amazing. You know, what we value and think as important is often upside down, okay? What the world views as foolish and irrelevant is often of great, great value. And certainly that is true with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Corinthians, they needed to remember that. They needed to heed that and internalize that and operate on the basis of that, and we do as well. Okay, the historical context, the best we can understand is, like I said, so this is Paul's third missionary journey. His third missionary journey, he has recently left Corinth. He's now in Ephesus for what would amount to probably about three years, ministering there, caring for them, growing and shepherding their elders. And while he's there, he hears from Chloe's people. She's only mentioned here. We really don't know anything about Chloe other than what Paul writes here. So either she's with him in Ephesus or maybe she's in Corinth and sends word to him. Somehow he understands that there are great divisions. There are factions, there's parties, there are cliques that have developed in Corinth. And it's not just that there are parties and factions and cliques. It's that they are extremely destructive, okay? They are causing great disunity in the church, so bad that later, later in the book of Corinthians, we find out that they weren't even eating the Lord's Supper together, okay? They were discriminating against each other, looking down on each other, had these parties affiliations. It was causing great problems in the church at Corinth. Okay, these factions, these parties, these cliques, they were very worldly and they flowed from a spirit of pride and a desire to appear wise, okay, which was a cultural value in the Greek context, certainly a cultural value in Corinth. We think that what they were doing is they were operating the way they had already always operated within this kind of Greek uh, wisdom um, philosophical uh, worldview, you know, we think that they would attach themselves to certain teachers, certain philosophers, certain sages, certain scribes, and that by associating themselves with certain individuals, that gave them a sense of value and worth and significance. And as they would attach themselves to these teachers, of course, they would look down on everybody else who was not associated with these teachers. And that's what pride does. I think that's what I love so much about that C.S. Lewis quote. It's not, you know, the amount of money that we have or it's not how clever we are or how good-looking we are, just the fact, the degree to which we're superior to other people as it relates to those things. You know, if everybody had the same amount of money or was equally good-looking, if we all looked like Jonathan Smith, you know, it really wouldn't, we would have no basis to feel that we were superior to other people. So you want to look better, you want to look superior, okay? That's just the way that we operate. It's just intrinsic to who we are, to take these wonderful gifts, these gracious gifts, the things that the Lord gives us, and we twist it, okay, to elevate ourselves at the expense of other people. Like, you know, human beings, we're not good at a lot of things, but we're really good at this, okay? Just, you know, pride is just such a huge issue. I mean, that's why C.S. Lewis appropriately refers to it as the great sin, the chief sin, the most foundational sin. Okay, so to address this, you know, to bring them back down to earth, Paul addresses them, rebukes them, deals with this in five different ways, okay? So, um, number one, if you look at verse 
13, Paul just describes how absurd this is on its face. Because we think probably what's going on is Apollos, um, who has a Greek background, may have been much more articulate, maybe a better speaker than Paul. And so, you know, the Corinthians were associating themselves with Apollos, like that gave them significance and street cred, you know, value, or Paul, who was obviously the apostle to the Gentiles, or Cephas, that's Peter, he was the leader among equals. Then there's the Christ party. That seems a little curious, right? To be rebuking the people for following Apollos, or Paul, or Cephas, or Christ. Isn't that who we want everyone to follow? I think what he's saying is that there are these parties that have developed these cliques, and people weren't acting Christianly toward each other. So that's what's going on. And so he's just asking the logical question, why in the world would you attach yourself to me? Was I crucified to you when you were baptized? Were you baptized into my name? Obviously not. So why in the world would you try to achieve some kind of status by associating yourself with me? Or thinking you're smarter than other people who perhaps maybe look to Apollos. It just makes no sense. It's absurd on its face. But, you know, so this is the opposite of guilt by association. This is superiority by association. We're experts at it. We are so good at it, and we do it all the time, even in ways that we don't realize. Ministers do it. Elders do it. Deacons do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. I mean, obviously, an example today would be political parties, political affiliations. We can take anything. Again, we are extremely gifted of just taking something that's good in and of itself and taking pride in it and wondering why all the other idiots around us aren't associated with that same thing. That's what we do. We look down on them and whatnot. I'll never forget, I told my Auburn um, people this morning that they would love this illustration. This is kind of a humorous. It wasn't humorous to them or in this context, but I think it's humorous. If you love the environment, you won't think it's humorous. Um, I love the environment. I don't know why I'm saying this. Anyway, back to this. In 2011, so like my dad, so when I visited my dad in, in North Carolina, somehow he has gotten onto, has discovered. It's been around for a long time, but my dad's now a huge fan of the Paul Feinbaum show. I'm sure many of our people here, I would think many of you, I hope some of you, have heard of Paul Feinbaum. Okay, so he is a college football analyst and he is he is he can be blunt and cutting he's extremely informative and he loves to bring the Alabama fans down to size and put things in their context and he's just great people love Paul Feinbaum well I don't know if it was 2010 or whatnot but some Auburn fans my dear friends from the Auburn section some Auburn fans had the audacity take a Bo Jackson jersey and tape it to the Paul Bear Bryant statue outside of Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, okay, which was infuriating to the Alabama fans. This is a true story. So this enraged Alabama fan calls the Paul Feinbaum show and admits and says because, in, like, to retaliate for what these Auburn fans did, that he had taken one of the highest-grade herbicides and had poisoned the roots of these old, ancient, 
beautiful oak trees in this beautiful city square uh, at Auburn called Tumor's Trees. Okay, and Paul Feinbaum, who's hearing this on the radio, is shocked. He's like, are you serious? I won't tell you what the guy said. He just said, roll tide and hung up the phone. So then they spend experts out there and find out that he did. And the guy told who he was, okay? That he poisoned the trees, the trees did die. I think they've replaced the trees, but he wrote, quote, I wanted Auburn people to hate me as much as I hate them. That's why I did it. That's what we as Americans do, okay? That's, that's, that's a humorous example of this party, factious spirit. And it's not just true of Auburn and Alabama fans. It's true of all of us in this room. We just may do it in what we feel to be more sophisticated and muted ways. We attach ourselves to something that's good in and of itself, and we twist it and we warp it to look down and be condescending toward other people. In Corinth, because of these party associations, they weren't interacting with other people in the church. We do that too. The church should be a place where we enjoy fellowship with all kinds of people. Okay, did you notice like the C.S. Lewis quote when he was saying that he's never seen anyone who's not a Christian admit that they struggle with pride? Meaning the world typically, you know, associates with people that are like them, that are their social peers, or maybe have their educational, um, they're comparable educationally. The church should not be that way. One evidence that the gospel is true is that we enjoy true, rich, robust relationships with people that are not like us. The church is the place where people with college degrees and master degrees and medical degrees and PhDs interact with people who didn't go to college and maybe never went to high school. The church is the place where the people of God are unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is convicting to me. Is it my default pattern for my best friends to be people just like me? Do I step outside my comfort zone? Do I see significance and value and worth in other Christians because they are loved and known by Jesus and not because they have things in common with me? My prayer is that our church would be known by that in the long run. We're not just interacting on Sunday mornings, but like investing in and creating real relationships with people who are not like us because we've been humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ and we see great significance and value in people and Christians who are different than we are. Very convicting to me. So the first kind of argument he presents is like, this is absurd. You weren't baptized into my name. I wasn't crucified for you. So why would you attach yourself to me or who you perceive that I am? Number two... And he's going to get a little personal 
Okay, he's going to meddle a little bit with the Corinthians. Number two, he says, I hate to break it to you. Because he's saying, he's saying you're following the wisdom of the world. You're emulating these, um, these Greek cultural practices, you know, by associating yourself with these people, you think you're something. And he basically says, I hate to remind you, the world thinks that you are fools, okay? At best, you may be big fish in these little tiny ponds, but in the scheme of things, you are viewed to be absolutely foolish. Like verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. He writes, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul is not saying, it's kind of a wordplay, he's not saying that the gospel is folly. He's saying the world perceives it to be folly or foolish, that it pleases God through what the world thinks is idiotic, namely the gospel, to save those who believe. But the point is the world thinks it's foolish. So why in the world would you follow the world in, in, in how you're acting when the world thinks that you people are uneducated morons? He was trying to humble them. Like, it's not going to work. Don't go down that road. It's a dead end. Hate to break it to you, but the world's never going to think you're bright or intelligent or wise, or that you have anything to commend. And the same is true today. You know, our church, other churches, there's always a temptation to maybe change the message, mold the message, adopt practices that might, um, that might appear more culturally relevant or significant. And what Paul is saying is, like, let me help you with this. The degree to which you are faithful to lifting up the person and work of Jesus Christ, the degree to which you faithfully preach Christ. The world is going to think you are foolish. Or today, you know, sometimes, I mean, people view Christianity kind of like a virus. You know, that, that the world needs another great vaccination to deal with Christianity. So don't go down that road. Don't try to convince the world that you're something. Don't try to elevate yourself in the eyes of the world. It's not going to work. They are, they are innately offended at the person of Jesus Christ. Third, I love how incisive Paul is. He's, he's like a prosecuting attorney here. So reason number one, you know, Apollos wasn't crucified for you, nor was I. Number two, according to the wisdom of the world, you guys are foolish. Don't try to impress them. Number three, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that it offers, ultimately, on an ultimate basis, fails. So why in the world would you take your marching orders from it? Look again at verse 21. Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, or the world could not know God through wisdom. In other words, within the Greek culture, they had some of the most sophisticated thinkers 
that had ever lived within these Greek philosophical schools. And the very best of these Greek philosophical schools, the best of Plato and Aristotle and other thinkers, the best of the best was not capable of helping the world understand who God is, you know, ultimately where we all came from, the wisdom of the world couldn't explain where everything is going. In other words, the wisdom of the world was not capable of teaching people how to know God. And so since they fail in that most ultimate of things, why in the world would you follow their example? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, obviously there's this word play on wisdom here, for in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it couldn't do it on its own. It couldn't explain truth on its own. Rather, it pleased God through what the world thinks is foolish, which is ultimately Jesus. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. That's true wisdom. What the world thinks is foolish and uneducated and maybe even a virus, that's the thing that God is using to call his people and grow his people and change his people. It pleases God to do this um, for all kinds of reasons, and we'll look at another one in just a moment. Like, so whereas the Greeks were drawn to the wisdom of the world. And that seems kind of vague, doesn't it? I mean, in our context, like what does that mean that the Greeks were seeking wisdom? What, is, what does that mean exactly? Again, like I'm saying, they were probably attaching themselves to various philosophical schools or great thinkers or things like that. What would be the temptation in our context? How would you boil down the wisdom of the world today? Okay, what, and what is the world, when I say world, you know, I mean like, people who have not, you know, trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so where does the world get its truth? What informs the world of what's true, what's good, what's bad? I think we're living in an age where more and more it's science. And, like, we love science. Like, like the scientific method kind of, like, bubbles up from the Christian worldview. It's wonderful. Science is wonderful. Okay, obviously the discoveries and all, you know, like just all the things that, you know, people have been able to do through the scientific method is, is, is incredible and we're the beneficiaries of it, truly. But like scientism is the view that truth can only be known. Truth, even capital T truth to the extent that it exists in that context, can only be known through the scientific method, and that outside of the scientific med method, truth is not knowable. So in a sense, in our context, science has often been, like when I say reified, it's been given like a personality. Well, science says this, and science says that, and we need to look at science. Hear me saying, we love scientists, we love the scientific method, but when you reify science and like, you know, impute to it a personality, like science says this, that's where answers can be found. And ultimately, the scientific method in science can't answer some of the most fundamental questions of life. God's reserved that for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate answer. Number four, 
And here I thought this was going to be a quick sermon. Okay, here we go. So we're almost finished. Number four. Like I said, he's, he's kind of getting personal. He's bothered by this. Like this really has irritated Paul the way that the Corinthians are treating one another. So he says this in verses 26 through 28. He writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Obviously, some were. Maybe a few were. But the majority of the church in Corinth would not have been composed of a people that would have been impressive to the secular society. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose people that the world deems to be foolish, non-credential, non-educated, not having a particular status. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. You know, like, like, like I said in the beginning, like initially the Navajo Indians were just thought of as barbaric and, and uncultured, unlettered, uneducated, and that their, their language was just confusing and whatnot. And, and that's the very language that, that saved our men at Iwo Jima. And Paul is saying, I hate to break it to you. Not only does the world think you're foolish and unlettered, like you, you are of no status. And see, God does that intentionally. You know, God was going to use people like the Corinthians to grow his church all over Greece and Macedonia. And the Lord didn't want the credit to go anywhere else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because these people were so impressive that they garnered a following. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that draws people and that changes people. That's where the power is, not in how great these people are. So he's trying to bring them back down to earth. Why would you be so ugly to each other? Why would you think you're better than someone else when you guys, you had no status? And that's why God chose you. And by the way, he chose you. You didn't believe it because you were wiser than anyone else or more open. I chose you. This was very humbling. And last but not least, Paul applies this to himself in verse 17. Self-promotion, what Paul is saying. We all need to heed this. David Ray needs to heed this. Self-promotion takes the focus off of Christ and the power of his gospel. Verse 17, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, I'm not going to get up here and engage in all this hyper-sophistry and engage in all of this rhetorical prowess, okay, to convince you that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, I don't, you know, as you come to Christ, I don't want you to put the credit in my speaking ability because there's nothing to my speaking ability. The reason that people are saved, the reason that you and I are saved, the reason that you and I don't think that Christianity is foolish is not because of our wisdom or our openness. It's because God called us by his spirit and he gave us hearts to believe and he used the power of the gospel to save us and change us and mold us 
and sanctify us and grow us, that's where the power is. That's where the glory is. And so Paul is saying, I'm not out, you know, giving these clever stump speeches. My job is simple, to raise up the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then we'll end with this. He says at the end, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. What are we boasting in? What's our identity? Where does value come from? Verse 30, Paul writes, and because of him, meaning because of God's calling, his effectual calling, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us or for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Beloved, Jesus is everything. And the degree to which we have meaning and significance and value, it's because of him. Let those who boast, boast in the Lord Jesus. Let those who love the Lord Jesus purposely seek out people not like them so that this dynamic of the gospel is brought to bear in the life of the church. May that happen here more and more at Providence Presbyterian Church. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father. We thank you for this timely reminder. Holy Spirit, we know that we are in the bullseye of what Paul was trying to communicate. I know that David Ray is in the center of that bullseye. Father, thank you for this humbling message, this convicting message. Father, how pitiful it is when I attach myself, associate myself um, to things to, to, to feel superior to other people. Lord, it's just, it's so absurd, and I'm so guilty of it, and I think many of us here are. Father, give us gospel eyes. Give us gospel eyes um, to see people's meaning and value um, as being adopted sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be a people. Um, that truly befriend all kinds of other Christians. Father, may the power of the gospel be at work here in our hearts and lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.